Hey, good morning, citizens. I hope that you are all doing well. Um, if you have a Bible, please turn to Titus chapter 2. We're going to be uh, covering most of the chapter um, this morning. And so I just want you to see it with your own eyes like we do most weeks uh, so that you can see what does God actually have to say to us this morning. So I don't know about you, but you can see if you're looking at the camera that um, I'm needing a haircut. Like a lot of people, the um, barbershops are closed, the salons are closed. And so unless you have someone in your home who cuts your hair, um, you're getting a little long and shaggy like I am. And so I had my youngest daughter actually give me a trim the other night, just on my in the back a little bit. And I couldn't really see, you know, how that was going. The only thing that I could go by was her repeatedly saying, it looks gorgy. Okay, it looks gorgy. And I just took her word for it because that's, I can't see it. So I'm assuming that it is coming out gorgeous and that it still looks gorgeous. But as she was cutting my hair, as she was giving the trims and she was asking, how do you hold the clippers and how do you hold the scissors? And she was making other comments um, as she was doing it. I got to thinking how, you know, if she really wanted to cut hair, if she really wanted to become a hairstylist, it would be a lot better if someone would actually show her how to do that. Now listen, she could figure it out all on her own probably. I could be her um, <clears throat> guinea pig for years and years to come and she could figure it out, but it would go faster and it would be probably safer and there'd be a lot happier customers if somebody would actually show her what to do. In our text today, in Titus chapter two, it's all about the idea of making disciples. And specifically, I want to frame it around this, um, this word of apprenticing. Okay? The way of apprenticing. So, you know, Christians uh, are familiar with the term disciple or discipleship. And, um, you know, if you boiled down the mission of Christians, the mission of the local church and the universal church around the world, you could boil it down to this very thing of making disciples. So of all the great things that the church can do, the, the way we, that we can be great neighbors, the way that we can serve the poor, the way that we can be um, difference makers in our workplace and how we can have you know, programs in all kinds of different churches. If you, if you boiled it all down to, you know, the baseline of what the local church is for, it is to make disciples. The final words of Jesus before he returned to, to the throne on high, uh, in the book of Acts, you can see this, and at the end of Matthew's gospel, his final words to his disciples are, make disciples. This is what I'm calling you to do. Go around the world and make disciples. So what does that even mean to make a disciple? Well, again, if you've been, if you grew up in a church or if you've been a part of church or hopefully even here at Citizens in the last year and a bit, you, you know that being a disciple is literally, it means to just follow in the way of your master. And our master is Jesus. So we are, we are a, a group of believers that are learning together to follow Jesus, to live life 
like Jesus lived life. And if you would look at the Gospels, you would see that Jesus, when he calls his disciples, he says, you know, Matthew, Mark, all these different ones, come and follow me. And then they, in turn, were to call others and they were to say, okay, follow me as we follow Jesus. And this process repeats itself over and over and over again. And, and a good word to, to kind of understand discipleship and disciple making is this word apprenticeship. Apprentice. Maybe, maybe some of you have done that before in your work. You know, if you want to become an electrician or if you want to become a plumber or some of these other trades, you apprentice with someone. Okay, you, you literally, you shadow a person who has more experience and skill. So I can remember, um, maybe it was a year ago, um, that we had some electrical work done in our house. We were getting some lights put in. And so we had an electrician come and he came, the experienced electrician came and he had a, another person who was an apprentice. Okay? They were learning what it meant to be a, uh, an electrician. And so they would follow the person around and they would do some, sometimes they would do like menial tasks, like maybe taking the caps off of the light switch or maybe, you know, cleaning up a little bit of stuff or, or being an assistant on something major that the electrician was working on. In our case, there was a, a set of lights that the electrician was working on. And then there was one light in the kitchen that wasn't as complicated. It was basically like switch something out. And the apprentice was able to do that. A smaller kind of simpler task that was more in their, you know, in their sphere of understanding. So this idea of apprenticeship is where a seasoned person who's, who's gone through some life and has, has learned some things along the way is then able to pass on to another person uh, the experiences that they have to save that person. In the case of an electrician, you know, the worst case scenario is that the apprentice, um, their life is saved because of the input of the person that is actually showing them the ropes. But at least they're able to learn some lessons along the way that this person has learned. So this is why when we're talking about discipleship and we're talking about growing uh, to be followers, to become disciples of Jesus, the, the scriptures often give for us this imagery that is very apprentice-like to where we are, are sh we're shown or we're given this um, image of following another person as they have learned and have gone through the process of following Jesus in their own life. And that's what we're going to see in our text today. What we're going to see is that making disciples and being a disciple is not a solo effort. Okay, and this is probably really difficult for many of us to, to take in and really appreciate because we live in a world that is super individualistic. That is like just driven by individual desires and individual pursuits. And what we're given today is this communal, family-like connection and context for uh, making disciples. So it's not me doing my own thing. It's not you doing your own thing. And then we kind of gather together on Sundays and we kind of talk about that. But rather, it's like making disciples is a group project that we do together. Or it's a community work that we do one with the other. And so... Paul is going to help Titus 
as Titus then is leading these churches to see this done well between older men and younger men and older women and younger women, and then even in the area of uh, bond servants or kind of in the, in the work environment. So apprenticeship is this idea of learning what I need to learn from someone who has gone before me and has actually learned some of those lessons already and it will, will speed up my development. It won't necessarily take every obstacle out of the way, but it will help me because they've actually learned some lessons that I can then glean from. So we are talking today about the way of the apprentice. So apprenticing is done together, okay? Paul's letter here, and if you have your Bible open, look at Titus chapter 2. In Paul's letter here, we see that Paul is writing again to Timothy. Look at verse 1. It says this, But as for you, and he's talking to Titus, obviously. He says, As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So he says, Titus, this is your role now. I want you to teach these people. Teach the people in these churches where you're establishing leaders and they're starting to grow and they're starting to make their own disciples. Here's how I want you to do it. I want you to teach them to disciple in this way. And Paul is, is not a foreigner to the concepts that he's about to teach. Him and Titus actually had this close bond. And I think we talked about this in the first week. If you look through 2 Corinthians, there's about four or five passages where Paul says, oh man, I need Titus here. I'm so glad Titus is coming. Titus is here and we're going to leave him to do some work. And you can see that Paul and Titus were these, these kindred spirits, these, these brothers in Christ that were together. And Paul invested in Titus on the journey of ministry and life. So Paul is not talking about some theoretical thing that, you know, that this is what you should do. He's actually talking from his own experience. He's actually talking from doing this with Titus. So as he's explaining this process, in Titus's mind, is probably going to have experiences and images of when Paul did some stuff like this for Titus. He might have some memories of when they were first going around Crete and, you know, going to these different fishing villages or into these small towns and, you know, working through different issues or maybe teaching on different topics. And Titus is going to bring back to his memory, bring, you know, to the forefront of his mind, the times where Paul invested in him. The times where Paul was the older one investing in the younger one. So, when we read these words here, they're not just like ideas. They're not just, um, you know, things that Paul wants to impart as a word alone. They come with real flesh and blood examples of Paul living this out with Timothy. So it would have, you know, would have given like strength to the message that Paul was giving to Timothy. And it should give strength to us too that that what Paul is giving us is something that actually can be lived out, that it can be experienced. And some of us have probably experienced this type of discipleship in real life, and others maybe never have before. And so maybe a question arises like, man, is this actually possible? Well, the Word of God is true, first of all, but it's also been experienced and even experienced by those who wrote it down on paper. So in the first First 10 verses, we see that 
the Apostle Paul is actually going to talk to five different groups within the church, and we're just going to focus on the, the first four, okay? Paul is specifically addressing older men in the church, older women, younger women, and younger men, okay? The, the fifth category, like I mentioned before, is bond servants, and we're not really going to take time to look at that. It kind of relates to the the attitude of people in their workplaces and how they deal with bosses and in the context of work. But for our purposes this morning, we're going to just, I'm just going to quickly go over these four in the first 10 verses here. And we're just going to try and grab a few little lessons from each of the different categories. So older men, older women, younger women, and younger men. Let's look again at verses one and two where he begins with the older men. It says this, but as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So Paul begins by saying, listen, Timothy, teach the older men in the church to be a stability for the church itself. The experiences of their lives, the things that they have learned along the way should be modeled for everybody in the church, but specifically for the younger men. So their lives should be marked by, you know, sober-mindedness, being dignified, being self-controlled, being sound. These are all like stabilizing forces, okay? They are to be stable people within the local church. And it doesn't mean that they are sinless people, okay? So if you're in that older category, um, it doesn't mean that you're sinless. And you don't need me to tell you that because you know that and we know that nobody is sinless. Chris Austin, who was a early church father, lived in around like the 400s, AD, he, he says this in relation to, you know, older, younger, that, that kind of idea. He says, there are some failings which age has that youth has not. Some indeed it has in common with youth. But in addition to it, it has slowness, a timidity, a forgetfulness, an insensibility, and an irritability. Okay, basically he's saying, listen, there's definitely a difference between young people and old people. There's also some similarities to young people and old people. And in that, it's like old people are not like sinless, okay? Older men here are not just meant to be these, you know, perfect beings, but rather through the experience of um, mistakes in their life, through the experience of maybe sin in their life, the things that they've learned about God, they are to apply those things to their lives so that they are stabilizing forces within the church. And they're able to be these examples of godliness and soundness and self-control. So the church and young men specifically benefit from wise men who can speak into experiences that they've had before. In verse 3 and 4 then, Paul turns and speaks to older women. So he starts with older men, then he comes to older women. Look at verse 3. It says this, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slave, slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women. And then he goes on into some of the things that the younger women are to be thinking about. 
And, um, you know, when it comes to the, the older women, the category for older women and probably older men as well is this category where, um, you know, most scholars would say where the kids are grown up and they're out of the house. Okay, that's kind of the category. So no more kids really living in the house. It's not going to count if someone's 40 and they're moved back in, okay? But the kids have moved out and they're in this new stage of life. And Paul says, really um, specifically, he says, you older women have a role to play in the life of younger women. And that is specifically, you can, you can see it there in verse 3, it's to teach what is good, and then at the beginning of verse 4, to train young women. So to teach what is good and to train young women. Of these four categories, there's one group that Titus is actually not encouraged to directly teach, and that's young women. Titus, Paul is telling Titus, saying, you know, some specific teaching that needs to go to younger women, that should be done by older women in the church. Their experiences and their understanding of the truth of God's word within the context of family or within the context of womanhood is best done by older women. So Titus here is encouraging older women to teach and to train younger women. That's like it's hugely important for them. What Titus does teach older women and what he's really encouraged to you know promote within their lives is what this translation the ESV says that they are to be reverent in behavior reverent in behavior that word it comes across uh, the idea of being a priest or a priestess in a temple okay that's kind of the root word behind there it's like this this reverence of being in the presence of God and that presence of God then is reflected on the life of the individual. So Titus is encouraged to teach the older women to live in such a way that they are experiencing and, and showing younger women what life is like being in the presence of God. John Stott says this in his commentary. He says that older women are to carry into daily life the demeanor of the priestesses in a temple. Or, as we might say, they are to practice the presence of God. That's your calling, older women. To, to train and to, to teach younger women is to show them through your life and probably through, you know, the, the years that you've grown up and matured and, and maybe you've had family or maybe you've had different experiences. The thing that you are to primarily impart is this is what it means to be a woman of God and to know the presence of God in all those different areas of life. Not perfection, not having answers to every question, not being able to you know, direct someone through every complexity of life, but simply to help young women Know and experience the presence of God, like a priestess in the temple of God. So older women are called to show these things, to model them, and to train and teach younger women in this, in this specific way. So what are the things then that Paul encourages the older women to teach to the younger women? Well, he lists a few things in verse 4. And just remember, for all of these, older men, older women, younger women, 
younger men. These are not exhaustive lists, okay? This is just, these are things that the Spirit laid on the Apostle Paul's heart. They were probably speaking directly to the context, and so he listed them here. So for younger women, the older women are to train them in these, four th- in these things, starting in verse 4. It says, And so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So the primary teachers in the life of these younger women is to be these older women whose, whose lives are marked by the presence of God. And the assumption, just for context here, the assumption that Paul is making, or maybe he directly knows, is that most or all of the young women in this context probably would have been married and they probably would have had children. And so Paul says, listen, the thing that the older women should be imparting to these younger women is the presence of God, specifically in the home life. Okay, that's where Paul begins, is in the home life. Now, he could have talked about, you know, being out in the market. He could have talked about, you know, all kinds of different things. But he specifically honed in on the home life. And just like we talked last week about elders, the home life is often the most difficult place to be who we are called to be. And it's Mother's Day this Sunday. And so, you know, you could probably lean over and ask the moms in the room, uh, how difficult it is over different seasons to just be a mom, to, you know, to care for kids or to love husbands or to do things around the house. Those are the places where often it's most difficult to be who God has called us to be. And so Paul primarily focuses around the home. And, and just to address, like, I don't think Paul is saying here, and most scholars don't believe this either, that women should not be working outside of the home. The context, again, in the first century was women and husbands mostly working from the context of home. Either the business was in the home, or they were farmers together, or they ran a business together. Even if, like, the husband was a fisherman, the wife was probably mending nets or, you know, cleaning fish or selling them in the market. So there's, there's no idea of like, okay, women should not be doing work outside of the home. The context is just primarily their full life was found within the context of the home. And so Paul's calling for the, the teaching and training that older women are to do to younger women is to, you know, do your calling at home. Follow what God has actually put before you in the little things of life. Lastly is younger men. Look at verse 6. Younger men, starting in verse 6, it says this, Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. That's the only thing that's given to younger men. One thing. And we may look at this list here and say, man, why do the young men only have one specific calling for them. That's different from all the other categories. The reason is that, and we'll read here verses 7 and 8, the reason is that Titus is most likely in that younger men category. So as Paul switches here to speaking directly to Titus, he's, he's going to actually be including younger men in that context. Okay, so verse 6, they are called to be self-controlled. Then in verse 7, it goes this way. It says, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show dignity 
sorry, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So the primary word to young men is to be self-controlled. And Paul here uses the word to urge, to urge earnestly. So he's saying, here's your calling, young men. Firstly, it is to be self-controlled. Now, if you look at the text, you'll see that that came up earlier in verse 5. It came up even earlier in verse 2. So it's something that other people were also uh, told to do. But here specifically, Paul says, I urge you to be self-controlled young men, to not be ruled by passion, to not be ruled by just, you know, vigor to get into something or to be ruled by some sort of um, sinful passion that is driving your desires or the things that you want to do. He says, your calling is not to be driven by that, but to be self-controlled. And then the word that he has for Titus then is to, to model then the rest of the instructions for young men is essentially to follow the lead of Titus the pastor. So the qualifications that we looked at in chapter 1, which were the qualifications for elder, those are the things that the young men are supposed to aspire to, are supposed to grow into. They're supposed to have older men and elder men investing in them. So their lives are not marked by passion or by, you know, just choosing to do whatever they want to do in the moment. But their lives are marked by self-control. And they're marked by all the qualifications and the character attributes that we see listed under elders. So they, in many ways, will become modeled and they will follow after the model of Titus, the elder, and other men who are modeling these character traits. These godly character traits. So all these instructions, the instructions for older men, older women, younger women, younger men, are all given in the context of this family. And so we also as a church have been striving for, you know, seeing this happen within missional families. We're taking little baby steps because of COVID-19 and just the way, you know, we have been able to, we've had to be separated. But our vision for missional families is directly tied to the vision here in Titus 2, that these relationships would bear fruit and they would actually come to reality within the context of all of our lives and that disciples would be made in missional families and then hopefully even in sacred communities as we go deeper and deeper into our relationship. But let's, let's end with this. The, the gospel itself is the power for apprenticeship, okay? So listing all these things here, we see that verse 11 starts with probably the most important word in the whole chapter, the word for. And that word in Greek is gar, okay? If you want to remember that, gar. That's one word that you need to remember because that is a explanatory conjunction word, okay? That word for is going to connect the next couple of verses to everything that he just talked about. So all the explanations of you do this, you do that, is all going to be rooted in this one thing here. And the one thing that, that the Apostle Paul wants Titus to root his teaching in and for the church to root their lives in is the grace of God. It's the grace of God. Look at verse 11. It says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, 
training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Grace, grace, we are saved by grace. John Newton said this once, he said, I am a riddle myself, a heap of inconsistence. That probably sums up most of our lives. Man, some days feeling like we're doing well, other days feeling like we're not doing well. Some days we love Jesus, other days we're totally confused by what it means to follow him up and down. And it's the grace of God that sustains us. If it was up to us, if it relied on us, it would, we'd be flat, right? There would be no relationship between us and God, but it is the grace of of God alone. And that's what, that's what Paul wants the church to understand and he wants us to understand. It's the grace of God alone that we depend. To do any of these things, to live lives that please God the Father, it's the grace of God. Romans 8 verse 31 says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God? Who in, sorry, who is at the right hand of God? who indeed is interceding for us. This is, this is what we enjoy through salvation, through the power of the gospel. It's a relationship that is made right with God, and it's the grace of God alone. It's his undeserved kindness towards us. So it's grace that actually trains us. Look, look again there at verse 12. It's the grace of God that is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It's the grace of God that's do that, doing that. Because I don't know if you look at the list above that we just really quickly went through, a lot of those things are flowing, they're going up the tide of what our culture is saying, right? They are going against the flow of culture. And we are called to stand firm by the teachings of Christ, to be disciples, to be followers of Jesus. And to do that, we need power because otherwise it's going to be like we're on the edge of Niagara Falls and the, the current of our culture is just going to sweep us over. And we need the grace of God to literally pick us up and to move us forward by his grace alone. Let me close by just saying this, the Apostle Paul over and over and over again in different books throughout the Bible um, uses the grace of God to be the motivating factor. So in the book of Corinthians, you know, when he's trying to get the Corinthian church to give to the church in Jerusalem, a church that's in need and, you know, desperately needs some finances to help in their poverty. He doesn't tell like some amazing stories. He doesn't guilt them. He doesn't say that, you know, God's judgment is going to come down on them. He says this, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. It's the grace of God, the grace of God, experiencing and knowing all that Christ gave up for us, for all of us who are undeserving. It's the grace of God. Tim Keller says this, Think for a moment of all the ways that you can say no to ungodly behavior. You can say, no, because I'll look bad. No, because I'll be excluded from social circles I want to belong to. You can say no, because then God will not you know, give, give me health, wealth, and happiness. No, because God will send me to hell. No, because I'll hate myself in the morning and lose self-respect. Virtually all of these incentives you've used self-centered impulses of the heart to force compliance to external rules but they do very little to change the heart itself. Paul is saying that if you want to change, you must let the gospel teach you. In other words, you must let the gospel argue with you. You must let the gospel sink deep down into until all your views and the structures of your motivations are changed. You must be trained and discipled by the gospel. Man, church, May we be individuals and a people who are marked by the gospel, not just pointing fingers at lists and saying, man, you should be doing this, you should be doing that, but saying the reason you should do that is because of the grace of God and only that. Let's pray. God, thank you for this clear instruction from your word and thank you for the clear word from the Apostle Paul that it is the grace of God that drives any change in our lives. And Lord, may we not be a a church of religious people who simply look to outward external actions, but that we are a church that is driven and powered by the grace of God that moves us forward. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.